The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode number 45. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make himself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, the movies, and more. Today we're discussing Such Sweet Sorrow, Part 2, the Discovery Season 2 finale, which Such Sweet Sorrow to end the Season 2, I guess. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Good. So uh, before we get started, I just want to remind folks, please subscribe uh, to the show in iTunes. Once once this episode is over, there's going to be much more Secrets of Star Trek coming up, and you want don't want to miss any of it. We're, we have a lot of great content planned. Uh, there's so much Star Trek to talk about that uh, it, this, is, this is something you don't want to miss. So please, if you have not done so, subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in uh, your favorite podcast app, uh, like like Overcast or Downcast or Castro and all the others, all the others. Uh, you can also subscribe and listen and, and listen to us on YouTube. Where if you do, make sure to hit the bell uh, on the next to the subscribe button to make sure you get notifications. We're at youtubecom slash StarQuest uh, is the way to find us there. We're going to be talking about classic Trek now that uh, the new Trek season is over. That's right. And there's so much, there's plenty to talk about, as you know. So uh, please share the podcast with your friends, uh, your your Trekkie friends, and especially those who have not been watching Discovery, but who want to talk about the the, the Star Trek they know and remember. And uh, we'll be talking about that, too. Uh, So help us grow our community of listeners. All right. So we're picking up. From where we left off last last time, where the the season two finale, we're, we're, we're right in the middle of the, the battle just about to begin between the Discovery and Enterprise and the Section 31 ships and the Section 31 and Leland, uh, I'm sorry, Leland in control, not, not Section 31, uh, are trying to get the sphere data that is contained on Discovery. And dis- on, on Discovery, they're trying to... Build, rebuild the time suit so they can jump it, the, the ship and the data 950 years into the future so that control doesn't get it. That's that's where we are right now. Yeah. And they spent so much time saying goodbye to everybody in the previous episode that now they have to actually do stuff. <laughs> right. Exactly. So uh, I want to start by saying it is physically impossible for Discovery and Enterprise to carry all 198 of the shuttles that are that are <laughs> flying around the two of them. I just like I'm I'm a ship guy. This is one of my things I love about about uh, science fiction, space science fiction. Mm-hmm. And 
they're cool. These shuttles are cool. They have like the single man pocket fighters and they have the the, the, the big, pods. The, yeah. yeah. Yep. And the big show. I, I don't care how small they are. There is there is no way like I, I'm watching these shuttles fly out of the shuttle base going. It's like a clown car in there. Like, how are they doing that? You look at the size of the shuttles inside Discovery's Bay, the the, the full size shuttles and their right. little, you know, repair crews and every cra- uh, craft and everything. And all of a sudden they're just pouring out of it. It's like, where are they coming from? Exactly. Well, on Discovery, they might be coming from the vast internal spaces that we see whenever they use an elevator. Um, <laughs> right. So I don't know. And it does have the, the, the big secondary hull. I mean, there, there's been point that's kind of been pointed out that there is a lot of space in Discovery that other ships don't have but we also know that some of that space is taken up by things like engineering right exactly uh, i mean it's some people say oh that's a that's a, an intensely nerdy detail to get caught up on but it, for me no, it, 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 it's, you, you gotta set it up realistically what we're seeing on screen does not match with what mm-hmm. they i mean i understand i understand the desire to have a huge space battle with vast numbers of ships but and that's fine you if you want to do that, but you need to set it up in a believable way. And that's what they haven't done here. They did kind of say, you know, like some of them are those little squid spinny craft and stuff like that. You know, little small craft that are, you know, a little bigger than a human anyways. So that does kind of make sense. But, yeah, you see these massive numbers of full size shuttles coming, pouring out of the back end of Enterprise. You're sitting going. What? <laughs> <laughs> they're replicating him in the hangar bay as they're like the people are running onto them and flying. <laughs> if this was if this was the Enterprise D, I would believe that because you look at the specs for that and it's got huge hangar bays. I mean, just massive hangar bays you don't actually see on screen. But yeah, not the original NCC one seven zero one Enterprise. Right. So uh then we have a, a sequence where we have Burnham uh and and others are w- working quickly to replicate this time suit which i mean this the, this sequence uh, everything moves very quickly because we spent so much time saying goodbye last episode like you said Jimmy we, everything now has to move very quickly to to get it all in and so we have as the battle is about to begin or it begins because there's actual fighting uh, while they're doing this they're down in engineering building this time suit uh, because they left it to the last minute and the papers do and the professor's waiting uh, or something along those lines. And one thing that I found interesting about this is they spend all their time focusing on the hardware of the suit. And I'm going, OK, fine. What are you doing about the software? How are you programming this thing? Because I'm sure it's not hardware locked to Burnham's bioprint. It's it's that's got to be in the software. So what's the deal with the software and why can't you just change the bio code at the software level? This is the thing. I think like these writers for a, not, and not just Star Trek, but a lot of again, a lot of TV fundamentally do not understand computers. They don't understand how computers work or they don't care. Uh, <laughs> they They just sort of want to wave their hand at it. And this is for. So, you know, like a police procedurals, this is sci-fi. I mean, everything. The only the one show that gets it right is Mr. Robot. That's the only show on TV that gets it always right. But here, the suit clearly is computer driven because when she's trying to program it where to go, she's programming it. You know, she brings up an interface and she's punching stuff on it. Well, I was, you know, was going to say, you know, you're talking about the computers. 
I can get some of the things that they'll say, you know, like the idea of the spear AI taking over the ship to prevent it from self, itself from being destroyed, preventing it from being deleted and so on. That's completely reasonable. I mean, we see viruses that can take over our desktops to prevent them from being deleted. We, I mean, that is something that's a real problem right now. But then the idea, the old, well, we can't have two copies or three copies or four copies. You have this one copy that moves around from place to place. The, the, I mean, that actually comes into play later in this in this battle. I mean, Ed, the, the Discovery is getting its butt kicked by the, the Section 31 ships. I mean, it is getting hammered and it is about to be destroyed. And I'm thinking, where's the sphere data AI now? Like, why isn't it protecting itself? Why isn't it, you know, jumping it or fixing things or whatever it is supposed to be doing? Because we know that it's been moved. And of course, that comes up later in the episode. It's not in the central core of the computer, et cetera, et cetera. It's off on a laptop somewhere. Yes. That's a fair point. That's yeah. true. That is true. Okay. Uh, when I, at the time I wrote that, that hadn't been revealed, but okay. <laughs> one, one thing that I thought I found interesting just cinematically in this one is we start with a swish pan between uh, Discovery and Enterprise, and we, we have that swish several times to jump us to different places. And and it it has a very effective, you know, feeling of urgency to it. And then later, but still early in the episode, when they're having Enterprise and Discovery talk back and forth, they start using split screen uh, for people on different on the different ships. And they even I think have one where like Saru is in the middle of a three way screen split. And that's something we don't normally see on Star Trek. Normally, they cut back and forth between locations. They don't do like in the movie Airplane and show us both locations at once on the screen. Right. Or they'll have a view screen. Uh, someone on yeah, a view you'll, you'll see the screen split on a view screen where there'll be like two people talking on the view screen. But yeah, not not as as far as an actual actual screen, a full screen split. That, that, that actually brings up the point. I we we have not seen a whole lot of people on view screens talking like we have often seen on Star Trek. We've apart from the holograms, which which Pike does not like, uh, uh, we don't actually see people on screens very often. We have seen a few times, but not very often, which is kind of surprising. They rather do these these jumps, jump cuts or split screen, uh, full screen things. Uh, So we have uh, the preparing for battle. Everyone has to give their speech of all the captains and Saru gives his, which is he quotes Sun Tzu. Uh, be extremely subtle, even to the point of formlessness. Be extremely mysterious, even to the point of soundlessness. Thereby, you can be the director of your opponent's fate. I'm thinking, well, that's all very well and good, but what does that have to actually do with the battle? What does it mean, and how am I supposed to implement that on a practical level? Thank you. <laughs> exactly. I mean, maybe as the captain, as you make your decisions about what the ship should do at this moment, that's... But, like, the what does that have to do with the guy who's at the communications console or the... And and also, you know, that's that's good advice as you're approaching the battle. But right now you're surrounded by a whole bunch of these ships that are going to try to blast you out of the universe. <laughs> you're past the point of subtleness. Yeah, this this was not this was a eve of battle attempt at profundity that failed. See, now, if they if they had put that in the previous episode as they're approaching, maybe as in like an overlay to the people saying goodbye. Or something like that. That would have been more effective. But as yeah, as we plan for this battle, think of these things. That's that's a sort of planning for the battle thing. That's not a 
as we stand here waiting for to engage the, the, the enemy. Right. That, that kind of advice, to the extent it's useful, is on the strategic level, not the tactical level, which is where we are now. So on the good side, I don't want this. I don't want the people to think that I'm completely negative about this. There's a lot of really good stuff in this episode. Uh, the this this moment where they're like, "Okay, uh, uh, control, we outnumber you. Our our three or two hundred ships, the Discovery, Enterprise, and 198 shuttles. Apparently, uh, uh, we outnumber you. Your handful of Section 31 ships." And he's like, "No, you don't." And then we have these. AI drones that that make up the hulls of these ship that that now uh, you know, deploy. I thought that I like that. I thought it was kind of cool that that whole sequence. I thought it was interesting. So in terms of the of the thirty one fleet, we're told that it's only Leland, and he registers as a life sign for some reason. He's um, a meat sack, but huh? <laughs> He's still a meat sack. So yeah, well, I guess <laughs> so. He he, but then it's just him. And no other life signs in all the 31 ships. And so Giorgio says they're drones, really nasty ones. I'm going, what happened to the crews? Did they kill them all? I wouldn't put that past control. I wouldn't put that past control that he did the same thing that they did to the one the one ship where he basically spaced them all. But this gets back to your only one copy of the software problem, Father. Um, if, If you're capable of nano infecting people like we've seen control do, why don't you nano infect these people? And then you've got, you know, several thousand people who can interact and do stuff in on the human level. Because this is a this is a super mega multiprocessing computer made up of all the ship's computers linked together and by remote control. And and I'm just making stuff up as I'm going. Here. It's, it's <laughs> not that, though, because we're this is the reason they're able to defeat control is once Giorgio takes him down, all the other ships are dead in the water. Exactly. So so yeah. control. And this gets back to one of my pet peeves in science fiction and fantasy is the critical failure point where you just need to take out this one thing and it solves your entire problem, no matter how vast it is, even if there's no reason for it. And so uh, there's even a line in there where Pike says that the other ships are getting signals from control. Okay, so put him in a Faraday cage and it, it he's the critical failure point, And that makes no sense, because if I were a super intelligent A.I., bent on no good i would make multiple copies of myself all over the place and other meat sausages so you can't just take this copy of me down and boil my plan well i just you know i, I you know for those who don't know uh my background before i was a priest was as computers and doing computer administration to be specific and you know i think of what google does today when you do a google search you're not hitting one server somewhere in california they have literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions of servers throughout the world that are redundant, that if one goes down, there's 10 more to back it up. It, and you never notice if they even have a, a server farm go down, you know, like a whole you know, warehouse full of servers. Why couldn't control do that? Turn every ship into a duplicate of itself that were slaved together. So when Leland goes down, all the other ships just jump right into action or keep going without... And Star Trek already has has this. It has it in the Borg that they've solved this problem uh, and they've and they've recreated a, a recreated this in, in a way that doesn't really work under the rules that Star Trek itself has established. And that's that's sort of the we can talk about that n- next time when we talk about this, the our overall look at back at season two. But it sort of hints at a 
fundamental, I don't want to say problem, but a fundamental way of doing Star Trek that the people who are running things now that they have that I'm I'm not a fan of. Uh, And so we could talk about that, but. Well, I was going to say, we, we've talked about it before, too, where, you know, they, they get science wrong because they don't have a science advisor. They get computers wrong because they don't have a computer advisor and so on. On the positive side, one of the things they do well frequently is dialogue and I, and character moments. And in this episode, I really like some of the dialogue, especially from uh, Giorgio uh, at, at the just before the battle begins when they're getting Leland on the line. You know, Saru is preparing the bridge crew saying there is going to be a human face, but what you're about to see is not a human. And then they bring Leland on the view screen and Giorgio says, Leland, we were just talking about you. And, and that's a great line. Unfortunately, (laughs) she follows it up with a clunker, which is everybody hates you. Congratulations. But, but I do like that one line. And then she points out to Leland, we've got 200 over 200 ships. You've got maybe 30. And Leland is just very businesslike. You know, he's dropped the pretense of trying to relate as a human, and he's just very businesslike. He says, you know, basically, give me what I came for or or you're going to die. And she makes the point about we've got 200 ships, you've got 30, and he just says, count again. And that's the moment they reveal the drones. Right, right. Thousands of of drones on the ships. And that's the end of the teaser, which was so, a, a dramatic moment. Right. And so then the battle begins. We're nine minutes into this just over an hour long episode and the battle goes on for 43 minutes, which makes it the longest and most ambitious space battle in Star Trek history. And I think this is probably one of the most impressive space battles ever on TV and maybe even movies. You know, I mean, it 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 was it was just it. Because it wasn't like like so many Star Trek battles that were almost sterilized. You know, they're just, yeah, these ships are, go- these big mega ships, even like the big um, DS9 battles where they've got multiple huge ships and everything and fighters and everything, nothing to this level. Yeah, there's a, it, I think it's a mixed success. I I mean, I enjoyed it. I, it would not have worked if we didn't have constant cutaways to other stuff happening. Um, because they've shoved so much stuff on the screen. There's no way to visually follow this. I have no clue. I mean, there's even a moment where when um, Spock and Michael launch out of the Discovery and Michael's trying to follow in Spock's wake, and I can't tell which shuttle is Spock's out of all the shuttles I'm seeing on the screen. The, the only way we know is because of she's got her suit is tracking which shuttle it is. She's having to rely on her suit tracking. And that's the same thing for me as a viewer. I have no clue what's going on. I see explosions and things. There's no way for me to get, except here and there, when they point it out, there's no way for me to get a sense of the tactics that are transpiring in front of me. It is incredibly difficult to write and create space battles, whether big screen or small screen. And and so... One group that did it well, though, was Ronald Moore in Battlestar Galactica. And they actually had a low tech way of setting the audience up for it. They'd show us models, you know, miniatures on a tabletop and game out the battle we're about to see before we see it. And that way we can tell what's going on and how everything is visually related to each other once the battle starts. Well, and and the fact is, once the battle starts, the the tactics are important, but it's ultimately it's going to be chaos. It's background. You know? It's really background for everything else that's going on. Um, it, you know, it, and the fact is, like, 
one of the things that drives that I had to set aside was this impatience I had for characters like Michael and Spock sitting there agonizing with each other about what's the moment, what we should say to each other to say goodbye. And I'm like, there are people dying. Stop. Stop emoting it. And I'm just like, you know what? It's going to happen. The ships are going to survive. The the, the whole thing is going to go on. Like I have to put my, my outside the, the, the show brain into this and you break the, the break the fourth wall and say, they're going to take as long as it, as long as they take, everything's going to be okay. You know that, you know what I mean? It's not, it's just to get it. Well, you kind of got to go with it to some extent, but I found it annoying also because it's not realistic to how people would behave in this situation. They would be running. Michael would not have this dramatic looking at the suit moment before she puts it on. She would be scrambling to get into it. And, and I, then they're standing there emoting and having dramatic beats. And I wrote in my notes, I was quoting Gandalf and just said, fly you fools. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, you had kind of Spock's version of that. No time for debate. Yeah. Well, you also, you also had that, that great line from Janet Reno where uh, Saru tells her to, to get down to engineering with the, the time crystal and Tilly go with her. And, and Reno gets on the, uh, gets in there and it's like, get off my, but oh yeah, say, but uh, yeah. sir, I mean, get off my butt, sir. <laughs> As yeah. the door's <laughs> Another nice line, and in key, in character for her, that's what she could do: bounce off to a to an acting captain without thinking about it. Well, and I I also like her line before that about you mean in case one of us gets dead. Yeah, yeah right. that was that was nice too. They do nice dialogue on this show. Uh, so then uh, Stamets is, gets injured uh, while they're bringing the suit to the shuttle bay and has to be taken to sick bay, where he'll of course encounter. Hugh and there's a whole moment where Hugh uh, is about to put him into a medical coma and talks about and there's a reconciliation of sorts there. So that that's it's except there's no reciprocation. This is kind of almost I mean, you think about it from one level, this is almost an assault. I'm, <laughs> I'm putting this guy into a coma at the same time. I'm telling him I'm having a romantic future with him. Uh, maybe he doesn't consent to that anymore. He didn't last time. Right. <laughs> You know, I will, will say, though, the scene where, where uh, Stamets get knocked out uh, was kind of an effective way of showing, you know, the damage in these ships is not just external. It's not just the, the hull getting blasted and the shields getting shields buckling. It's stuff inside going boom, too. Yeah. You know, I think that was kind of an effective way of showing that. This also reveals something else, which is it's not just the bridge crew that decided to stay with Michael. Apparently, everybody on the ship has decided to stay with Michael and go into the future. And I'm going, really? Hundreds of people have agreed to go forward who knows how many centuries and never see their family well, again? A millennium. This is a yeah. one way trip. Right. Well, I know, but they yeah. don't necessarily know it's it's 950 years. But, right. Right. But but it really I mean, this this sounds much more like this ship is going a wall. You're stealing Starfleet personnel and i really can't imagine this being consensual on the part of much of the crew so it, i i found myself having trouble with that yeah uh, although uh, we do solve the problem of how do we how do we leave spock behind uh without you know taking him into the future even though he volunteered which is that he's guides michael to the perimeter of the battle using a shuttle and and thus very clearly from that moment on we realize he's going to somehow not be able to get back to discovery which turns out of course i mean we it's obviously he can't go i mean we did talk about uh, last time uh the idea that if they did go back in time then maybe they'd come they'd he'd be with them for a while and then come back right. and then have they, they could have done that if they yeah. wanted 
By the way, so we also have Poe in this episode, and she uh, gets on the horn to Pike. And I love the first thing she says is, first, I invoke diplomatic immunity for stealing this shuttle. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and then, as you know, because she knows about engineering and so forth, she tells Pike that their attacks on these shuttle things from 31 is going to fail because they have a special kind of shielding and that you have to attack the shield from two sides at once if you want to crack the shield. If you just attack one side, it'll reinforce from the other. So you got to hit it from two directions at once. And so they start doing that and it works. I liked that because this is something new on Star Trek in terms of what something we have to do to get through the enemy's defenses. Before, with the Borg, it was like they're modulating their shields. Okay, fine. That's been done. But this is something new, and I wanted to give him credit for that. That is true. So meanwhile, Leland beams aboard while the shields were down uh, to let to let uh, Spock and uh, and uh, burn him out. Burn him off. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, as you said before, Jimmy, now that he's on board, how about we put up a shield around him that blocks in, uh, electromagnetic radiation and he can't communicate with all the other ships? Mm-hmm. That would be a nice, neat solution. That would solve the <laughs> battle right there. <laughs> so we don't do that. But this time... He doesn't kill everyone on the bridge like the vision that Michael was having. And so is this already... Yeah, they've changed the future. Yeah. They've they've changed so she saw a possible future. And I think the d- distinction I was thinking about this that Captain Pike grabbed the crystal as it was still in place and that locked him to that future. Hmm. Interesting. Head Burnham cannon. did not at that point. Yeah, she is not. She did not grab it as it was original, un, untreated, whatever, however you want to put it, unprocessed in situ. And so she saw a possible future. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting way to rationalize that. That is otherwise a problem that people pointed out. But that's a nice way to way to headcanon it. Good. Right. And nobody actually does touch it. We do see Spock using that little uh, gravitational Gra- thing. Grappler thing. Grappler thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so Leland heads into the uh, ready room where he's going after the sphere data, with, which he thinks is in there, and followed by Nan and uh, Nahan Giorgio. And, and Giorgio. Thank you. Um, where they have that a, a little bit of a, a a nice back and forth about him being an AI stuffed into a meat sack, and thus he's an AI sausage. And then ew. Even before then, you know, Giorgio says she's moved. Well, okay, so they they have to break in and. So they're working on the control to the ready room, to the door controls. And Giorgio says to Nan, after we get through this, would you would you would you like to help me make him scream? And (laughs) and and Nan says, yum, yum. And I noticed in this episode, Nan is showing a lot of joy in battle in this. Not only. Does uh does she say yum yum to the idea of making Leland scream when Leland says, where can I find my data? She says so many fun ways to answer that question. <laughs> yeah. And and, you know, the innuendo there is like you can imagine all kinds of places that would be unpleasant to find the data. So but she non has really developed some spice and particularly in combat. Also notice in the episode where they kill uh, Arium, it's Nan who does it. And so they're really building up Nan as a kind of somewhat bloodthirsty, slightly more moral version of Giorgio. Yeah, I mean, she's the head of security, so she's the warrior type aboard. And, and that, that you would make sense. You'd have someone who's 
good at this sort of thing <laughs> to doing it. Uh, so we have, uh, then we jump to, no pun intended, the time suit uh, with Giorgio, I'm sorry, Burnham, I'm, I'm, yeah, Burnham and Spock on some part of a ship. Yeah, what are they on there? I, <laughs> the first time I threw this, I thought they landed on the hull of the Enterprise or something because it's so big. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not. I don't know what I, they're I on. I thought it looked like it was must have been like part what was left over from a Section 31 ship that got blasted. Yeah. That has that's to be. I could think it was. Yeah. So she can't make the jump. It won't It won't jump. With the, there's probably a bug in the software that they didn't account for. Well, th that would be the real life thing. I mean, this thing is completely untested. Uh, however, they instead and explain that it won't go into the future for reasons that have to do with Michael hasn't made the jumps into the past yet. She says there's an open they're in an open loop and she needs to close it to go forward. This made no sense to me. You could at any point go make those jumps. It shouldn't affect the suit's ability to go into the future now. Well, what is the external fo intelligent force imposing these rules? That's my question. We keep mm -hmm. having these sort of, ex there's a, is, I mean, from a religious point of view, it's God imposing the, these, the, the, these limitations. But within the story, what is this external intelligence imposing these rules on how when she can do these jumps and how she can do it? And it's just it's quantum. It, that didn't make sense. It's quantum wibbly wobbly timey wimey plot <laughs> reasons. Yeah, right, right. So, and this is about the same time now where we have the uh, that photon torpedo, the undetonated photon torpedo that we kept seeing in a vision uh, breaching the Enterprise's hull. And the Enterprise sends out repair bots that are way too cute and look like they're from Wally. -E. But I do love <laughs> the idea of repair drones. I like the idea, but not these. I mean, but <laughs> but yeah, I know they did. They were a little too cutesy. You'd have some droids with uh, like R two D two. If you want to go back to the uh, Phantom Menace, to, to, that to would have been less cute than these. Yes, but I love the idea that that like we're updating our tech, you know, as as always. And yeah, you would instead of sending you know, human beings or, or, or sentient beings out on the hall in the middle of a battle, you would send out drones to, to, to do the work that, that makes sense. And I, I did like that. Um, then we have, uh, you know, you know, everything seems to be going badly. Yeah. The, but then the Klingon cleave ship arrives and then a fleet of Baul fighters arrive that are now being piloted by, um, Kelpians. Post-Varhai, post Varhai, uh, Rawhide. Uh, Kelpians. I'm not sure how you say that, but uh, yeah, ba bloodthirsty, battle battle ready Kelpians are now uh, on the on the thing. Uh, the the Klingon cleave ship. Uh, did we see that last season? I believe we did. I think that's the one that uh, was it the the Olympus, the one that the admiral was in in the the first episode, second episode. I think that's the ship that crash crashed into it and then decloaked. Okay, okay, that's. Because that thing is massive. <laughs> that is huge. Uh, and so we have we have the Kelpians and we have Suru's sister leading them into battle. And uh, so I'm not sure. So apparently the, the war against the Ba'ul has gone pretty well for the Kelpians. Yeah, apparently so. What about this peace and harmony business? Nope. The predator species has reasserted itself. <laughs> That's right. We're back, baby. <laughs> and then uh, see Spock realizes that each signal that led led discovery to something they would need to win the battle. That was this is the big revelation we have. Reno and the asteroid, Boreth and the time crystals, Zahia, 
Terrelysium, which is where they need to go on the other side of the wormhole. All of these signals have have been uh, an element to the battle. And therefore, as we were just saying, uh, in order for things to move beyond this point, we have to make those jumps first. Right. So two problems other than the problem I've already mentioned, which is there's no reason you need to make these jumps right now. Um, problem number one, why do they need Terralesium? The only reason Terralesium has been important in the future up to now is because it has no technology. And so control was not messing with it in the future. But if you're about to eliminate control, you don't need Terralesium as safe harbor on the other side. You could presumably go anywhere if control doesn't exist in the future. Um, and because you're about to change the timeline, how do you know a thousand years from now Terralesium isn't safe harbor if it's not the same Terralesium you know about? The Terralesium was important for for Gabrielle's safe haven, and she's important for the getting them to this battle. Mm, they don't need to go there, though. I mean, they might want to just to find mom, but but it's not needed to win the battle. The other problem is now they're going to have the time suit jump to these different locations, which is fine. That's it's what it's for. But where does it get the ability to make red signals all of a sudden? Um, I mean, they, they haven't talked about that at all. Mom said she didn't know anything about red signals, and that would suggest they're not part of the suit's design. But suddenly, out of nowhere, the suit gets the ability to make these bizarro, galactically seeable red signals. And even if you want to say we're going to jump to the places they're needed right now, why did you have seven of them go off at once in the very first episode of this season? How does that relate to any of this? Michael hasn't doesn't do that. That is the problem that I was about to bring up, which was what were those seven signals that all occurred at once at first and then occurred one at a time after like for, so for one thing presumably they didn't know where exactly these seven signals all occurred when they all occurred at once but yeah that's that is a hole that they never they never cl closed they never fixed that and i don't understand how they could get away with <laughs> how they think they could get away with not closing that loophole that is a big plot uh, not loophole plot hole i i wonder if that's something that they're going to try to address next season they may try to address it, but I think it's sloppy writing at this point. Yeah, I agree. No, I agree with you. I, I, I mean, the idea of, you know, the seventh signal where the seventh one, you know, is the one that gets seen at the end of the, the episode where they're on the Enterprise. We can deal with that. That's fine. Which, by the way, that leaves an opening for them to come back at the end of season three, in my opinion. I can see the last episode of season three, and we'll talk about this next week, but where we end at that point. Yeah, right. So the, the red bursts were, as they were described as, a series of temporal anomalies, unlike anything Starfleet had encountered before, that were precisely synchronized. So, yeah, it, what were they? What, what, sent, what sends the signal? Yeah, there's, and, and of course, we, we still have the seventh signal that is yet to be given. We'll get to that uh, as we go. But uh, so Spock asked Burnham to take a leap of faith that is logical. That's what he, he says. So that uh, uh, and, and so she needs to to, to do this, even though uh, it's a leap of faith, but there's logic behind the leap of faith. So there is faith and reason. Yeah. Funny. No one's ever talked about that before in the history of human ideas. <laughs> well, you know, it's a mysterious world uh, all around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So uh, Leland, uh, back on the uh, on the discovery, is unable to find the sphere data in the computer. Man, I know how he feels. But if you go through the time machine backup, <laughs> that's usually yeah, where I exactly. find it first. But Backblaze might be where you eventually have to go and re-download it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the and, and we have that. We we talked about that where uh, Non in uh, taunts him with uh, uh, oh I can talk about where we could you could find that sphere data. Uh, Michael then uh, jumps through the wormhole that she creates. Yeah. Also, Spock, Spock's shuttle. Yeah, Spock's shuttle. It gets disabled and then she jumps through the wormhole. We have this very 2001 A Space Odyssey sequence that also <laughs> looks like Spock's voyage into V'ger from the motion picture. Yes, it does. Very, actually very reminiscent of that. Right down to how she reacts, like the, the mm-hmm. beetle position. And uh, and then she we have this quick review of all the signal events. So it functions as a nice uh, season rev- in review moment where we get to see all of the things that led up to where we are here. Um, uh, Then we have this fight between Giorgio, Leland, and Nan in the uh, Discovery Corridor where the gravity is shifting. So the set is essentially a hallway that they built that rotates. It's a barrel that rotates. And so they're they're, rather than... um, Not Frank... um, It's like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance scenes. Yes. Sorry. Oh, that would have been a good hit if I didn't... Have a brain malfunction there. See, uh, uh, it would be interesting to know the practical of that if it actually was a you know uh, just a, a corridor in a barrel type of thing, or if it was more CGI imposed and they just turned a camera within a. No, that's a that's I'm sure that's how they did it. This is a, this is a, a technique that Hollywood has often used, and I was thinking about could you just do this with CGI? Well, I mean, CGI wasn't the right word, but like green mm-hmm. screen. That would be really hard to do it on green screen because the, I mean. Because they're could. falling, and I was I was watching as they as the fight progresses. Like there's a moment where Giorgio leaps onto Leland and pushes him in a certain way, and I could figure out okay, they've tilted the hall this way, and so that's why they're falling in this direction. I mean, you could do it, but but it's but it's much cheaper and faster to do it just a rotating barrel. <laughs> I would what, think. Fair enough. I mean, it's just yeah, I didn't know. If- what I found interesting in this scene is that Leland is shown grimacing and showing emotion and feeling pain. And I wasn't sure about why, if he's just a computer in a meat sack. But um, apparently his pain nerves are still attached and produce some kind of pain response. So and I know they the reason they want that is dramatically so he can scream when they kill him. But I kind of thought it would be interesting to see him fighting totally emotionlessly, like none of this hurts him. But the, they did establish uh, a few episodes ago that the whole point for Control to merge with Leland was to get those more human responses. So I'm guessing that there's still a bunch of human, autonomic, involuntary responses in there. So that would be uh, so that's probably why uh, that we have uh, Cornwell in number one are on uh, Enterprise trying to disarm this torpedo. Yeah, I had a couple of notes about this. One is up to this point, um, Cornwell has been remarkably inactive. Um, She is not acting in this battle like a commanding admiral. Uh, Not at all. She's leaving everything to Pike and Saru. And and that did not strike me as plausible. She does begin to show some leadership as she's getting closer to her sacrifice. 
But even then, it's not going to be great, uh, as we'll talk about. But so they've they've she and number one have gone down to where this um, torpedo is impacted. And there's a blast door, which is going to be very implausible. But there's a blast door that has failed to descend entirely and they can't get it to they're trying to reprogram it to get it to descend. And apparently this is going to shield the inside of the ship if the torpedo blows. Cornwell says that the torpedo's secondary de- detonation sequence has started and will go off in 15 minutes. And and I'm going, if the torpedo has a secondary detonation system, why isn't it immediate? And how can you tell by looking at it, it's going to be 15 minutes from now? Because they've got because <laughs> it's got these really cool lights that light up in sequence as it gets closer and closer. So I can imagine the design meeting at Starfleet Engineering thinking, okay, so we need to have these torpedoes. What if they don't go off when they impact? Well, we should have a secondary explosion just in case. Oh, okay. So it's just boom. Well, maybe we should have it wait a little bit, just, you know, just a little while. Why would we do that? Because it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, one, one, one headcanon I could do with it is, you know, this is a, a safety feature that if the torpedo is accidentally jostled in the ship while it's in battle, that it doesn't go off, et cetera, et cetera. Time to kick but, it out. The, the But the there tube, should still yeah. then be a, a, a reboot switch or something to say, OK, shut down system, you know. Yeah. There should also be an arming sequence you have to go through with this before it's even possible for the primary detonation system to become active. So, yeah, and and this 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 sacrifice. So Cornwell, there's a there's a manual release for the door on the inside of the room as opposed to the outside. But I get that because sometimes you're you know, you might be on one or the other side of the blast door, although maybe designing it such that there are releases on both sides would probably be not a design flaw. On the other side would be particularly handy in this case. Well, I mean, if if the torpedo was on the other side, then they could release it, come down. Everybody lives. But in this case, uh, that that's unfortunately not. And so we have this uh, moment where uh, she she has to release it. It goes down and Pike now had come down and he's on the other side of the door uh, looking through at her and it explodes and boom and she dies. And it blows out like a quarter of the ship, except for that very like that tor- the, the elevator shaft, the lift. Uh, so here's so just before we get to this point, she and Pike are having a conversation because Pike is wanting to make the sacrifice. And she tells him, your story is not over. And I think, you know, that and I'm going, how does she know this? Because she's hinting about his fated destiny. And um, so I didn't understand that. but then. She makes this argument to him, you know, he because he says he essentially says, well, if I if I jump off this cliff, the angels will descend and keep me from dashing my stone, my foot against a stone. And <laughs> and and she says, well, if you're wrong, all these other people are going to die. You can't take that risk. And she's not saying what she needs to say. Get out of here. That is an order. You know, I mean, she is the most unadmiral like admiral I have ever seen. Um, <laughs> and and then she she gets him out of there. She pulls the switch. The barrier comes down. It's got a big freaking piece of glass or something in the blast door. And Pike just aluminum. stands there. It may be transparent aluminum, but Pike is just standing there inches from this pane of glass when a light when a. It, just inches from this piece of light transparent technology when a photon 
torpedo <laughs> is about to go off <laughs> feet from him. Right. And somehow it blows up. It blows a quarter of the saucer section away and he doesn't get a sunburn. He from doesn't all get the photons jostled. That thing is. <laughs> yeah, it's just. No, maybe they I, should I make the whole the whole hull out of that material. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it apparently stops photons really well. And it didn't seem all that thick. Photons, <laughs> yeah. Just the bad ones. You can still see the good ones. Right. Yeah. So that was like, no, I understand you want him there to witness her sacrifice, but this is something on the writing level you need to let go and move beyond. He should be running like crazy away from a fully solid blast door that does not have a transparent window in it. Also, they uh, apparently it's been established they do have point to point transportation at this time. They could close the blast door and beam her out of there. Yes. Uh, there was uh, residual radiation from the photon torpedo. Yeah. Transporters <laughs> were down. Yes, transporters <laughs> were down. Uh, uh, I've seen this on Star Trek before. Uh, you can't get away yeah. with that. <laughs> so the sixth signal, the red signal, turns out to be the guidance for discovery through the wormhole. So uh, this this is what Burnham says, that she's going to go through, light the red signal, and discovery will follow her. Except that doesn't actually happen, does it? On screen, does it? Does she? Well, she it yeah, sort of does. I mean, she lights the red signal and they start going through. But the special effect is of the wormhole is so big. They don't need Michael to guide them through this. They can just point and click and they'll be fine. Uh, right. It's 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 kind of hard to miss a giant black hole uh, over there. Uh, see, Giorgio, uh, she fights with Leland all the way down into engineering, with, which is a, a lot of fun, and eventually gets him into the spore chamber, uh, which she manages to magnetize and... Uh, she she demagnetizes Leland. So that actually pays off something they did a few episodes ago that we talked about, which is when the the nanobots were in someone else and Spock used a magnetized floor to disable them. And we commented on why do the nanobots have to be made of ferrous metals? It's this is why. So they can take down Leland in the season finale. Right. And apparently the only place on this ship that you can magnetize the floor is in the sport chamber as opposed to the rest of the ship. Well, it's 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 not a it's not a Faraday cage, but apparently it is a magnetic cage. Yeah, well, but but the, but on the Section Thirty One ship, it was just on the bridge. Like they she, they magnetized the floor. I just you know anyway. Uh, Spock shuttle is too damaged. Can't follow Burnham. She has to leave him. Uh, she doesn't want to lose him again. He says she taught him it was possible to be both human and Vulcan. He 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 says a line that I'm sure a lot of anti Discovery fans will not like because of what it says about Spock. But she says. You saved me. You are my balance. You always have been. I'm afraid I may not find it again without you. Right. Uh, yes. And then she tells him, uh, I want you to find the person who is least like you uh, and, you know, connect with them. And she's obviously talking about Kirk. This is a. Except I'm thinking, oh, McCoy. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, McCoy exactly. is the one who's least like Spock. Kirk is the balance between the two of them. Yeah. But, uh, so uh, Spock takes will take the advice and she'll never know it, uh, which is both. Uh, which is very tragic. Uh, then, and as I said before, they jibber jabber while people are dying. Um, I only wish I could be certain of your safety. It will be, and so that will be the seventh signal that she will send from the other side. And apparently, one can say "I love you" in Vulcan. So he he says a phrase yep. in Vulcan that yep. translates as "I love you." So Vulcans can love. All right, they go through. They disable control all the drones and stuff, and they get through the other side. And that's the last. And apparently. 
apparently Enterprise can lower its shields in this battle to beam Spock aboard. Yes. Uh, yes, they they did. But uh, they've they've managed to kill control. So all the ships are, are stopping. And and as Discovery is taking an inordinately long time to get through the wormhole, we get treated to some Star Trek, the motion picture wormhole special effects where everyone has blurry trails. So that was yes. kind of nice. Yes. Also, Pike says to Saru, goodbye, my friend. And then he adds my family. And I'm going, that's not the right thing to say at this moment, because they're not your family. You're the bridge crew you're standing with right now is your family. You've just been on a vacation with these other people for a while. <laughs> you don't want to diss your current bridge. Oh, you're my other family. I mean, <laughs> That's my pilgrimage family, my my vacation family. Yeah, this is twenty third century or whatever. They can have multiple families. <laughs> Leland also, before Leland dies, he says, "This does not end here." And Giorgio says, "Actually, it does." But they've put the audience on notice: Leland may come back in the future. Of course, we don't ever want to close off any possible no, no story. No one lines. ever goes away. And, yeah, <laughs> I was just going to quote that. Rolling no one again. is ever really gone. <laughs> yeah. There you yes. go. As uh, the rise of the Skywalker tells us. Uh, in the future, the Golden Gate Bridge will be covered in solar panels. I just want to point that out. Uh, that uh, instead, Because they won't need cars to drive across it. Uh, but apparently solar will still be pretty big in a couple centuries. Even though they have antimatter reactors. Yes. Uh, Starfleet headquarters has been established previously as being at the Presidio in, in, in Star Trek. And I've been there. Again. Yep, I've been to the Presidio. Although yep, before it's been apparently been transformed into a really cool like neighborhood with shops and and uh, but also uh, high tech businesses and stuff. It was when I was there it was just a shut down fort. So and then uh, we have this sequence of the Pike and Number One and Spock and Tyler are all uh lying to their superiors about the fate of discovery they tell them that oh discovery exploded it's gone um tyler is made a captain in section 31 the commander of it yes uh, and starfleet is going to overhaul section 31 uh this it's is going underground yeah presumably it, the first step toward to the ds9 uh, version of section e even 31 even though they say it may need more transparency yes uh which means it's going to get less <laughs> and then uh <laughs> Georgia was on Discovery, right? So she's not yeah, going she's to be in the, the future. She's not going to be, as far as we can tell, in the new Section 31 TV series, unless they're filming this. So she is in the new 31 TV series. That right. She said that they're going to do Discovery season three and then the 31 series. And so presumably and they've also said that this 31 series will be used to explain more about why Section 31 is so different a century from now. Um, but they so apparently she's going to somehow get back in time to have conflict with Ash Tyler in the new 31 series. Assuming they don't pull the she snuck off the ship at the last second right before it went off, went through the wormhole, et cetera, et cetera. And she never actually went into the future. They they could do that, but they've in. I mean, she's indicated she's in the in the next season, if I'm not mistaken. Do we know for certain that Ash Tyler will be in the next in the Section 31 series? We we don't. Um, but w otherwise, why wouldn't they put him on the ship to have romantic conflicts with Michael next right. season? 
the one though yeah i know that would be the thing the one thing i'm thinking of is maybe and we'll be talking about this more next week like we keep teasing next week's discussion maybe discovery doesn't come back to this moment in time it comes right. back to maybe tng era right maybe so and, uh, and maybe it's only giorgio that comes back it doesn't have to be the whole ship right right so uh Spock recommends that all Starfleet members must be ordered never to speak of Discovery. It's Spore Drive or its crew again. Otherwise, how will the fans deal with the breaking continuity? Uh, he doesn't oh. actually save that, but it does solve the Spore Drive problem. But how realistic is this order? Like, what about the civilian family members? What about the civilian crew that built this is, Discovery? This, this is such a, a band-aid over a major wound in the continuity. I mean... If, if you're really going to take that, because so all the data on the spore drive is going to be deleted from every Federation computer ever. And all the records of these people will be deleted and no one will ever know they existed. And, and, and yeah, yeah. no, that ain't going to happen. Is, this is using a sledgehammer to kill a gnat. And the, the, the fact is the, this is all about, I mean, the spore drive. Okay. That so you've got it. This can this can't help explain the spore drive. But in terms of the um, and why that doesn't get used in the future. But in terms of, but that makes no sense because the spore drive is not the problem. The sphere data and control were the problem. You don't need to say we must never use the spore drive again because of those. Um, so it really doesn't fix that, and it's unnecessary to fix the why didn't Spock ever mention his sister before. Because we never saw it. He might have talked about her all the time off screen. And it just was never relevant to the stories they were telling. You know, that's their, their I think to a certain extent, they have um, taken f critical fan concerns overly seriously to where addressing them, they're going out of their way. I mean, like the whole thing about the Enterprise has had its holographic systems ripped out and we'll never have them reinstalled. I mean, come on, that's nonsense. Just they did. They, we just never saw him. Big deal. Right. Or we've changed continuity. <laughs> Let's just change continuity. Fine. I mean, deal with it. Your brain can handle that, fans. It's OK. <laughs> uh, they, they make an interesting choice uh, in shooting this scene. We never see the Starfleet Admiral's face. We see part, like maybe his, I think we see his jaw or something. But the, I, I don't understand. I didn't understand what the what the idea was. Well, it's similar to what they did with her trial way back, you know, episode three of season one or episode two of season one, where you there's the three, you know, three admirals on the, the panel or the three well officers. Anyways, you don't see their faces. You always see the back, the side. You're not even the side, but it's always from other profiles where it doesn't show this person. It's meant to be a little Kafkaesque. You know, you have this faceless interrogator. It also puts the focus on, you know, Spock or Captain Pike or number one instead of the person who's doing the interrogating. I also like the way they intercut between the different people being interviewed as part of the investigation. And for the state your name question, number one answers number one. <laughs> yes. And and. For all I know, that could be her real name. I mean, I've always assumed it's not, but I did see somewhere that actually she says her uh, and I didn't catch it, but someone did say she said her name uh, that is Una, which is Spanish for female one, you know, feminine form of one. Una comes from some books that gave that. And of course, yeah, it's, it's a Swedish name. But of course, in Spanish, it's the female version of 
It's in the notes on the the memory alpha. It says that uh, she number one finally gets a name in this episode. But like like I said, she just says she just says it's number one. I mean, that may be what they're referring to, that that's now her official canon on screen name. Yeah, uh, maybe it's very weird. It might be something that's in the script. Another aspect of all this that's implausible is as far as I can tell, lots of people on Enterprise would have known that Discovery did not explode. And getting everyone to agree, it's not just these four people, it's all kinds of people on Enterprise, not at least at a minimum, the entire bridge crew, but probably lots more people than that knew Discovery did not explode. And and getting all those people to agree to lie to Starfleet or keep quiet about this is implausible. And I just I thought this whole we're never going to talk about it is just unnecessary and ridiculous. I agree. It was unnecessary. I really, I, know, I still don't understand the, the purpose of that uh, other than fan service. Well, and let's, let's not, not forget. What about the Klingons? What about the Kelpians? Right. They're not right. Federation citizens. They're not bound to treason orders. There were other witnesses to the battle. Uh, we have Spock ends with a personal log, which is interesting because the personal log addressed to Michael, because this season we started with a personal log by Michael addressed to an absent Spock. Uh, and he, he says it's been 124 days since Discovery's disappearance. Uh, and we have these, uh, it's over, uh, it's a voiceover for over various scenes. And one of the things we see is Enterprise repaired in a dry dock. And the dry dock is the one from the motion picture that Enterprise mm-hmm. is in. So we have that continuity there, which I, I kind of had fun. Uh, we finally see Spock in his uniform. And this is obviously a, a a symbolic choice that until now, Spock has been out of uniform with his beard and long hair, even though he's been on these ships for, you know, for quite some time. Uh, so it, but now we finally see him in his uniform. Looked better with the beard. He Sorry. did. He yep. totally did. The the, the, the the to prove once again the beard <laughs> when he when he goes on the bridge everyone looks shocked because he's shaved and it's like yeah definite downgrade dude <laughs> yes exactly yes, as we've established in Star Trek when there is a beard it's better <laughs> so uh, <laughs> all the, the way back to the original Spock followed yeah, by Riker I ha- I have to say by the way the summons to the bridge when Spock is in his quarters it didn't sound like Anson Mount. His voice. It, it sounded like, like James T. Kirk. That's yeah. what I thought too. Spock to the bridge. Yeah, I don't know what that was because that was my friend. I had to watch it more than once. It's like that's James T. Kirk's voice. I are, we're we're about to have a time jump, and then we didn't. Yeah, that that was a very interesting. I I, I wasn't sure whether it was just me or or you. So I thought that was a lot of fun. I think it's a, a little bit of a homage. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all that if, you know, if there's ever behind the scenes where they say they purposely picked a recording of William Shatner from the original series saying it to throw it in there. That wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, that might be I that might have to check it out. There is a make narrative sense though. Doesn't make narrative sense, but that's more of a wink and a nod to the fans. So also as part of this montage, we see Spock meeting with his parents, so we know they've been reconciled, and he says he's sworn never to speak Michael's name to anybody except his parents. So he can talk to them about it because they have diplomatic immunity from investigation. And so he can tell them everything that happened. Um, Finally, the seventh red signal appears in the beta quadrant, 51,000 light years away, which is the location of Terra Elysium. So that's, we know that's where they went. 
And I'm thinking, okay, so does Starfleet now want to investigate this new red signal that's just shown up? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so we've noticed this. So what about it? And 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 if they did get the red signal, is that because Michael came back in time? Well, maybe, but it, you well, know, maybe that's the the end of what three. she said, <laughs> what she said she was going to do is from the other end of the wormhole, I'll set it off and you'll see it. And then because of the wibbly wobbly, he doesn't see it till 124 days later. And this this is where I where I see, I I think, again, we'll talk about this next week. But this is where season three is going to end. Maybe. Uh, yeah, perhaps. So we do spend a lot of time with Enterprise at the end of this episode, which is a lot of fun. I kind of like seeing Enterprise and imagining. And as we end, we fly the camera flies out of the bridge bubble. Uh, you know, just like in the cage, the the first pilot reverse the cage. Series. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was actually a really nice choice there. I did. I, like that. I, I like a couple of little snippets of dialogue right before they do that, where Spock says, "Let us see what the future holds," which of course is this is what next season is all about. Wink, wink. And and then Pike says, "Hit it," which <laughs> right. is a nice variation on the engage captain, or engage yeah. make it so line. The, the, there is a, yeah oh the, that's something I was gonna say but the, we spent a lot of time with Enterprise we see the bridge we see Spock's station we see the viewer and even the graphics on the screen are the same graphics that we saw in the original series so yeah that was a lot of fun uh, and in the credits over the credits I don't know if you guys bothered to watch credits I did uh, a little for a little bit and the theme music from the original series you know, Alexander Courage theme is overlaid on the Discovery theme during the credits, which was a nice touch. I, I like that, too. Uh, so. All right. So that brings us to the end. Uh, so we're not going to we're <laughs> as we've told you at infinitum, we are not uh, speculating on next uh, next season yet. We're going to have our season in review episode next week where we're going to we're going to look back uh, over the whole season, how it all went. That's what I'm going to speculate. So you're going to and we'll speculate. Yeah. Next time, though. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so. Um, any other notes on this episode that uh, we didn't cover? Anything left? left do have a couple? A couple? Do have a couple? Um, you know, first of all, it's amazing that the time suit can get battered by debris and a blast, and it's completely unharmed. Yet the yes. shuttle gets hit. Yeah. Um, right at the beginning of the, that fight in that barrel room, uh, with Leland. But funny how two red shirts, two random crew members, just happen to walk in just as a hole opens and they get sucked out. But yeah, the yeah. guys don't. Bad timing. Um, the Klingons were very Klingon in this one. I did like that. Today is they a good very... day to die. <laughs> yep. One thing, uh, you know, when we're talking about the flashbacks, I wanted to jump in on this, but we are moving pretty quick. Um, they made it sound like not just did Saru get to see a good view of the angel, but knew got to see that it was Burnham in the suit, but never said a word about it. They kind of hinted at that did they? he said something about it was it was not true but his sister said oh you came back and brought help no, that's a line from the original episode though i don't i don't think the implication is there i just i i thought it they kind of imply i thought there was kind of a they kind of implied there but maybe i'm misreading it so anyways yeah i think i think maybe it was more generic like whoever this person is is help um as opposed to maybe but that's possible I, I, I didn't catch that. That's interesting. Um, okay, so let's uh, wrap things up. But before we do, we want to take a moment, to, like we like we always do, to thank the patrons who make it possible for us to create Secrets of Star Trek and to do this discussion each week about 
Discovery and coming up about all the Star Trek series. And we all want to thank by name this week, Edward G, Billy C, Placid K, Helen O, and Michael S. Uh, through their generous uh, donations at sqpn.com slash give. Their financial support, and let's be honest, this is <laughs> this makes it possible. Uh, we, we wouldn't be doing it without it. It makes it possible for us to continue making Secrets of Star Trek and all the, the great shows we've been doing at StarQuest. And you can join them by going to sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. What did you think of, so specifically about this part of Such Sweet Sorrow, part two, uh, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, you can give us our, your, your feedback on the whole season next week. Uh, but, but what did you think of our discussion on this part? So let us know by going to sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, which is at uh, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Leave some feedback there or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time, like I said, where we dis discuss Discoveries Season 2. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Hey, glad to be here, and thank you, Dom. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, this is Starfleet. Get her done.